All right. <clears throat> I'm going to get started because I am committed to only 30 minutes. So this session is about raising... <clears throat> the title is called Raising Warriors. I, I would put a subtitle to it. What I want to really talk about is raising what I would call biblically masculine boys. So raising biblically masculine boys to men. So the first... I'm going to have to assume certain things. If this assumption's wrong, it, it, it's going to have to still stand. I'm assuming that you would affirm certain things about the Bible, what the Bible says about what men are supposed to do. So if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, if you look at Ephesians 5, 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, you have some instructions about what men are supposed to do, what their responsibilities are. <clears throat> and the responsibilities that are taught in those pa passages have to do with marriage. So a lot of what is taught about biblical manhood and womanhood is taught in the context of marriage. So I'm going to assume that, and I'm going to say the first thing in terms of raising masculine, biblically masculine sons is you got to have a compelling vision. And by that I just mean this. You start out from the end and work your way back. What do I assume all of my boys are going to be when they grow up. My assumption is they're all going to be husbands and fathers. Now, <clears throat> I realize there is in the Bible the permanent gift of singleness, and I believe in it. It's just not very common. It seems like it's more common because people are waiting longer and, and waiting until they're older to get married. But the permanent gift of singleness is not very common. If it were super common, we wouldn't even have a society. So it, it marriage and Parenthood is required to propagate society. And Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply. That's the more common thing. So my assumption is <clears throat> that the pattern of all of Scripture and the pattern in all the world is my boys typically, probably, likely will grow up and be husbands and fathers. So that's that. And according to the Bible, what does a husband and father do? I have three broad categories. A husband and father is supposed to lead provide, and protect. All right. So now my boys are going to have to be leaders, providers, and protectors. Well, then my next question is, what kind of characteristics are going to have to be present in their life in order to be leaders, providers, and protectors? <clears throat> and I'm not going to provide an exhaustive list. You come up with your own list. But it's things like resilience. I'll put gospel in front of it. Gospel resilience. But just the sheer fact of getting knocked down and getting back up again. Getting knocked down getting back up again. Courage. Things like that. That's not where I want to spend most of my time. Because there's a fourth level where I want to spend most of my time. And that is, the, so the first level is their husbands and fathers. Second level, leader, provider, protector. Third level is what characteristics. But then the fourth level is, what am I going to do? And what are you going to do intentionally in your home to help cultivate courage, to help develop a leader, provider, protector, so that your sons can be the best husbands and fathers they can be? What are you going to do specifically and intentionally? Because i got to tell you, if you're not intentional about these things, if you just let it go, there are certain characteristics your sons are never going to possess. You have to be intentional. So... <coughs> What I say is, after you have a compelling vision and that's that, and you kind of 
come up with that on your own. What are you going to do? So we say in our home, and we've said some from day one, with our children, our boys in particular, we've got to create moments of danger, adventure, valor for the boys. Now, it doesn't have to be real danger. I want to be clear on that. It just has to be perceived danger. They just have to think it's dangerous. That's all. So when Gunner and Georgia were seven, Fisher was five, we went on camping, we camp a lot. One of the great things about camping is that something always happens that forces the family to come together. The tent leaks, somebody gets stung by a swarm of bees, skunk comes through the thing, a deer beds down. I mean, it just, there's just all sorts of things. And they're not all bad things, but just that usually something happens, something goes wrong on a camping trip that forces the family to kind of rally together. And if the parents will treat it the proper way and not complain about it, but embrace it, it will teach your family to pull together and it'll help your kids improvise. It'll help them handle things that come at them out of the ordinary. Camping is just, even if you're not a camper, you can still do it for one night. It doesn't have to be, you gotta do it five nights in a row. But camping, and, and my wife likes the tent to be right next to the campground bathroom. So it, we're not totally roughing everything, okay? And now that we're older, have a little more money, camping has turned into a cabin. But either way, stuff happens. So we go walking on a trail. We camp. Next day we're going to go on a trail. Now this campground is about one hour away from Louisville, Kentucky. This is not out in the wilderness. So we get on the trail, and I get the boys together and I say, boys, you got your pocket knife? Yes, sir. I got mine too. Now here's what's going to happen if we see a bear. Now, just to be reminded, I'm not gonna see a bear. There's no bear within 10 miles of this place, 100 miles of this place, all right? If I actually thought I was gonna see a bear, I'm probably not gonna risk it, right? I just, I'm not interested in seeing a bear, <clears throat> unless I'm hunting the bear. So here's what's gonna happen. Gunner and Fisher, I'm the biggest, I'm the strongest, I got the biggest knife. I'm going in after the bear if we see a bear. I'll be the first one. I've never fought a bear. So I'm not sure exactly. I got a little bit of a plan, but it may not work out like I have it planned. <clears throat> so Gunner, yes, sir, you're next. All right, if I go down, you got to go in after the bear. Fisher, well, his pocket knife is that big. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, son, I don't even know if that knife will penetrate the hide of a bear. I think my advice to you is try to poke his eye out. And then I look to the girls. I say, girls, while Fisher's getting eaten, you run like crazy. He's the final distraction. Now, again, we're not going to see a bear, but these boys are amped up. They want to see the bear, strangely enough. Daddy, 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 I think I see a bear. I think I see a bear. <clears throat> no, butterfly. <clears throat> not a bear. But you know what I'm instilling in their heart? Because this is what I say. Here's the bottom line, boys. In any situation like that, the boys go down while the girls go free. That's how we roll. And that's how the Bible talks about manhood. 
sacrificial, life-giving. The boys go down while the girls go free. Another camping trip. Dana's sleeping bag had fallen down into a, <clears throat> what really amounts to a ditch, right? Like a 12-foot ditch. That didn't sound ominous enough, so I called it a ridge. Boys, mama's sleeping bag's down there in that ridge. You gonna let mama sleep on the floor of that tent in the cold without a sleeping bag? No, sir. No, sir. Mama is not gonna sleep without a sleeping bag tonight. That's right, she's not. Now listen, I don't know what's down there. I don't know if there's an anaconda down there. Now, again, we're still at that same campground we're talking about. There's not an anaconda in the whole continent. <clears throat> they don't need to know that. We might find the bones of the last guy that went down there in that ridge. I don't know. But we're going down there and getting mama's sleeping bag, aren't we? Yes, sir, we are. We went down there. You'd have thought they defied death and treachery. They talked about it for two. Dad, remember that time we went down there in that ridge? Oh, son. I am still amazed we're all alive to talk about it today. See, you're just shaping their heart. Nobody's in, nobody's in danger. My word. I could have thrown them down there in that thing and they wouldn't have gotten hurt. It's shaping their heart. <clears throat> so let me fast forward. Fisher's 10. Five years later, after event after event after event, just like I described, shaping their hearts, building in them the instinct that the boys go down while the girls go free and the instinct to protect and to care and to provide. <clears throat> so Fisher's 10, I'm in my house. He's across the street in the neighbor's driveway because the neighbor's driveway is really steep. And... You know how you can take an, a wagon and sit in the wagon and turn the steering wheel around and then drive it with a steering wheel. Surely most of you have done this. And you can go down a hill and you steer it. And it's fun. And that hill, how, that, their driveway is so steep. I mean, you probably get up to like 25, 30 miles an hour. It's fast. And so I was just enjoying a moment as a dad watching my son just watching him have fun with just an old wagon. No electronics, nothing. Just, And he got in the zone. And by that I just mean he just got so repetitive in it, he wasn't even paying. The world, there was no world around him. The only thing around him was that wagon and that driveway. And he'd drag it up, jump in, turn around, wasn't even looking where he was going. And he had done it so often, he just, he just was instinctively jumping in the wagon, going down, jumping in the wagon, going down, jumping in the wagon. Well, this all happened so fast. I couldn't do anything about it. What I realized in a split second, little girl, a couple doors down, she's just riding her tricycle, minding her own business. Fisher jumps in the wagon. He doesn't see her because he's in the zone. He jumps in the wagon, and he is starting downhill. And they are on a collision course. He is going to obliterate this four-year-old girl. Obliterate her. And there's nothing I could do. I'm paralyzed in my own house. And you realize he's only got like a one and a half seconds to make a decision about what to do. No time to think. 
And what he did at the last second was he wrecked that wagon. He turned the wagon so sharp, it went sideways. He flew out of it <clears throat> like 15 feet away, flew out of it. And the funny thing is that little girl had no idea. She just kept riding her tricycle. Like, <laughs> he, he's probably going to an emergency room. He kept her out of one. She didn't even know, right? So I run over there expecting the worst, and turns out he was fine. There was blood involved, but no emergency room visit. I said, are you all right? He said, yes, sir. And this is what he said. The boys go down while the girls go free, right? Yeah. Yeah. You see, you don't practice that in real life. You, you practice it when there's not real danger involved, but it shapes their heart so that their first instinct is that girl is not going to get hurt at my expense, or is not going to get hurt because of me. Fast forward a little more, Gunner's 12. <clears throat> and uh, we live on a pond. It snowed one Friday night, and it was a lot of snow, like eight inches. We never get that kind of snow. And we live on a hill ourselves, and it, it's a good sledding hill. Now, the funnest part is when the pond is frozen over, you can sled down the hill and almost all the way across the pond. It is fast and fun. The pond hadn't quite frozen over, so it was slushy. And my current 16-year-old daughter was about 10 at the time. Wasn't a terrible swimmer, but wasn't great. Plus, she had on a bunch of heavy snow stuff on. So she got going really fast and went out into the pond. It was drowning in the pond. We didn't know about it. Dane and I were in the house watching Wheel of Fortune or something, enjoying the quiet. All of a sudden, my other daughter comes running up. Pain's in the pond. Well, by then, it was too late. We ran out there, and Gunner is dragging Peyton out of the pond. She didn't drown. And I said, Gunner, what happened? He said, she got going so fast she couldn't stop. She went out and hydroplaned into the pond. She was out there floundering around, drowning in the pond. He said, I started to take off my jacket, and I thought, forget that. She's going to drown while I'm taking off my jacket. He said, I just dove in and got her. Now, I got to tell you, we don't practice drowning situations in our house. Like, I don't throw a kid in the pond and say, hey, somebody's drowning. Go, what do you do? You don't do that. Well, I guess you could in a more controlled situation. That's not how we had done it. It was just in his heart. It was just in his heart. It, it shaped his heart all those times when there, there, was, there was nothing at stake. When he believed there was something at stake, it had its way in his heart and his first inclination. I got to tell you, if one of your daughters is in trouble somewhere, I promise you, you want, you want Gunner or Fisher to be around. And this isn't because I'm trying to raise street fighters. This is not about swagger. This is not about being John Wayne. This is not about raising Rambo or Commando or whatever tough guy you think is out there. That is not what I'm trying to do just so that they are the toughest guy on the campus. That's not it. This actually has much more to do with the gospel than you might imagine. Because what, what do we tell our kids? A lot of parents, and I won't get you involved in this, 
<clears throat> I'll just say outside, of, a lot of parents think that their primary responsibility is to make sure their kids never get hurt, never take a risk, nothing bad ever happens. And that actually isn't the case. So what do we tell our boys a lot of times? I'm not suggesting you do, but I have been around the country quite a bit. Don't climb that tree. Why? You might what? Get hurt. Don't jump your bike. Why? Because you might get hurt. Don't try that. Why? You might get hurt. And I would like to suggest to you that boys that are told their entire lives, don't do this or that because you might get hurt, are going to be so handicapped that they may be sitting <clears throat> in the sanctuary of this church hearing the preaching of the word and your pastor and your leadership team might have identified an unreached people group somewhere and they're going to put out a call for some young men who are going to need to go to that place and find this unreached people group and find out what the needs are and what to do and come back and report in. And it's not going to be safe. It's going to be dangerous. And I promise you that those boys that have been told their whole life, don't do this or that because you might get hurt, there is no way on this planet that they are going to raise their hands to go do something like that. So, it's missiological. It's gospel-related. <clears throat> one of my former colleagues at one point was a missionary in, with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was responsible for all of Middle Asia, coordinating all the mission work in Middle Asia. Basically, any country that ends in Stan, he was in charge of it. And by, prior to, to, to the 9-11 attacks, he had an opportunity in Afghanistan an open door, <clears throat> an open door in Afghanistan for gospel advancement. He needed about 100 young men. Had to be young men because of the way folks in Afghanistan feel about women, so it had to be young men. And he needed a critical mass of 100, just 100. You realize there are 44,000 Southern Baptist churches in this country right now, 44,000. All he needed was 100 young men. Now, he wasn't able to go to all 44,000 churches. He did come to the United States, and he did recruit like crazy. You know what? He couldn't get 100 young men. He couldn't even get 100. Nobody wanted to do it because it was scary. It was dangerous. It was going to be hard. Now, I trust in the providence and sovereignty of God, but just humanly speaking, imagine what was lost. What opportunity was lost? This was before 9-11. What opportunity was lost? I'm not saying it would have prevented 9-11. I'm just saying we're never getting in there now, legally. <coughs> so, what's the worst that happened? I'm not talking about fraternity stunts and things like that, jumping off, you know, swallowing goldfish, but letting our, I'll say children in general, letting them do some things that will increase their confidence, their resilience. It's important for our kids to be able to fall down and get back up again, literally. 
when Fisher was about eight years old, my wife called me. And he's, cra he's been crazy his whole life in all the right ways. But he, she said, Fisher's out in the treehouse. He's got a rope tied around his waist and then the other end of the rope tied to the tree limb. Do you think I ought to wait until you get back home? I said, well, yes, but not because you can't handle it, but because I want to see this. I mean, because y'all know it's getting ready to happen. <clears throat> so I come home. He heard my car drive up. He ran out there, got all set up. I walked out there. And he said, you ready? I said, oh, son, I've been waiting for this all day. So he jumps out. He's, he's, he's doing what everybody dreams of. He thinks he's going to fly. Flat. Flat on his face. And I know that made some of you queasy, but he's all right. He's okay. You know what he did? He got back up and he said, I think the rope was too long. Oh, you think? <laughs> let's, let's take engineering off the table for you, okay? <clears throat> I'm going to guess math isn't going to be your strong suit. He said, can I do it again? Sure. Now, if this were four stories high, I'm not letting him do it. It's a tree house, hardly off the ground. <clears throat> he came to me, or he didn't come to me. I drove home one day, and <clears throat> I'd let everybody know I'm on my way. So he's standing outside waiting on me to come around the corner. I come around the corner, blood everywhere all over his legs. His knees and legs look like a crime scene. And it was dried up because he wanted to show. He left it there all day because he wanted to show me. So I drive around the corner and say, hey, man, what happened? He said, Isaac put a ramp in the cul-de-sac. Well, now, I already know what that means. And some of you already know what that means. <clears throat> it means that all the boys could have been in the basement, in their basements, playing Xbox, but Isaac put a ramp in the cul-de-sac, and every boy in the neighborhood felt the disturbance and the force. And they, they, there's a ramp. They, they discern there's a ramp, and that means they have to get outside and go jump it. Simple as that. No questions. No explanation needed. That ramp is getting ready to be jumped. <clears throat> so I, did, I just skipped to it. I said, how'd you jump it? He said, I decided I was going to jump it on my rollerblade. So we live on a double cul-de-sac. He said, I went to the other cul-de-sac, and I went as fast as I could, and I hit that ramp. He said, Dad, I was like 15 feet in the air. And he said, <clears throat> and I thought to myself, I have just made one big mistake. I said, what was your mistake? He said, I didn't even think about how I was going to land. All right, that's a good lesson to learn. Is he okay? Sure. Is he tough as nails? Oh, you better believe it. But not for swagger. I want to get back to that. Because Fisher also is the kid that if your kid is by, by themselves in the youth group, or they're awkward, or they're not a part of the crowd, Fisher, I promise you, is the first one to go over there and befriend that kid. This is not so he can be a bully. I want his inclination to be, <clears throat> I'm willing to do what I need to do. I'm willing to provide, protect, lead, take a risk, take a chance for the gospel. So let's fast forward. Fisher's 19. Last year when he was 18, <clears throat> he uh, graduated from high school. He learned uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, got really good at it. So he went to Moscow, Russia for six months. 
with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and his cover was to join a fight club in Moscow. Now, was that dangerous? Yeah. Were you worried about him? Sure. Is it too late? Yeah. It's too late. <laughs> I already created this thing. <clears throat> my daughter, we're, we're doing this with all of our children, frankly. My daughter graduated from college at 19 and spent a whole year in the Dominican Republic. She didn't know a soul, not one human being. I had a connection with a school there. She taught in an English-speaking school in the DR. She's by herself in the DR. She lived with a, another young woman. Taking an Uber at night in the DR, Santa Domingo. You say, were you worried? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I worry about taking an Uber at night here, some places. And then it's my daughter. But I got to tell you, she's not looking for Mr. Nice Guy. She's looking for somebody that has courage, a man that has courage, gospel courage. And they're going to do something awesome. She's willing to do whatever. She's got courage. <clears throat> Boys do gross stuff. And I'm just going to say, especially to you moms, don't worry. It's okay. They're gross. I remember Gunner and Fisher were smaller, about seven and five. <clears throat> and Fisher came around the corner. I was outside. He said, Dad, have you ever eaten a live earthworm? Well, the answer is yes. It was a youth pastor stunt I did a long time ago. I thought if I advertised I was going to eat a live earthworm, everybody would show up, and then I'd present the gospel, and everybody would scream, what must I do to be saved? And none of that happened. But I did eat the live earthworm in front of everybody. So I said, yes, son, I've eaten a live earthworm. He said, was it any good? Now, as a dad, you cannot miss this moment. Because the answer is, son, it was delicious. Because you know what's getting ready to happen. He's already found an earthworm, and he wants to eat it. He's just trying to get some approval. So sure enough, he leaves, comes back around the corner, dirt all over his face. Dad, you're right. This thing tastes awesome. So then Gunner comes around the corner. Did you let Fisher eat an earthworm? Like indignant, like I let him drive the car or something. Yeah. Dad, are they any good? Oh, son, you have no idea. They're delicious. Okay. He comes back around the corner, dirt all over his face. You're right, Dad. It's awesome. So then Georgia, she's seven. She comes around the corner and runs in the house to tattle on me to tell Dana. Everybody outside is going crazy. So Dana comes out. She says, hey, um, our... Uh, are you letting the boys eat live earthworms? Now, at this point, I'm in too deep, right? So I've got to act like I read this in a parenting book. So I can't lose confidence now. I've already done it. So I'm like, yes, James Dobson himself said, boys, all boys should eat earthworms live. So I said, yes, I did, with all confidence. And then she asked a question that, at least all of you women in here surely would have asked. And she says this, is that normal? Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You'd be shocked at what they're willing to put in their mouth. Shocked. I'm, I'm worried 
my, I left I, my older two. They're great young men. <clears throat> I'm just worried their last words on earth are going to be, watch this, right? I wonder if this 30 out 6 can shoot through the propane tank. I mean, I'm not worried they're going to throw a keg party. I'm just worried they're just going to do something crazy because their brains aren't fully formed. I walked by Gunner one time. He was younger. It was a father-son moment I'll never forget. I walked by an open-door bathroom. And I walked by, and he and I made eye contact. The only problem is I was standing looking in, and he had just pulled his head out of the toilet. And we made eye contact, and water is still pouring off of his head. And so I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I don't know. All right? So really, I mean, like, at least say you were thirsty. It makes a little sense. I mean, you just decided, I think I want to see what it feels like to stick my head in the toilet. <clears throat> I'll say this. Masculinity is imparted by masculinity. Let me encourage you dads to be very involved here. And let me encourage you moms, don't be offended if sometimes your sons don't believe what you're saying. Let me give you an example. When Fisher was smaller, <clears throat> Dana took him and Gunner and Georgia and some girls in the neighborhood to a park. And Dana's athletic and she's a great mom and she took a bat and a few baseballs and the boys brought their gloves and she was going to hit some balls to the boys. So she says to Fisher, for Fisher says, hit me a fly ball, mom. And she says, can you catch a fly ball? And I He's like every other man. He could not catch a fly ball, but he just said he could anyway. Oh, I got it. I got it. Okay, so every, he's already practicing manhood, overconfidence. So she hit him a fly ball, and she could not more squarely put that ball on his eye had she just walked out there and just put it on his eye. Oops, sorry. So he's crying, just square right on the eyes. He's crying. They get together at the van and. Other moms come running around making sure he's okay. And Dana says, I think I'm going to take him to see his dad, take him to his dad's office. And one of the ladies said, well, what's he going to do that you can't do? Well, first of all, what if I was a physician? Like, what if I was a medical doctor? You don't know that. I'm a neurologist, something. I'm not. But here's what I can do that Dana couldn't do. Because all the way in the van, Fisher's upset, <clears throat> And Dana keeps telling him, it's all right, fish. It's all right. It's going in one ear and out the other because what that young boy is thinking is, Mom, you have no idea what you're talking about here. The worst possible thing has happened to me. I got hit in the eye with a baseball in front of the girls in the neighborhood, and it was hit by my mama. Like, this, uh, name one thing worse, Mom, that could have happened to me. Just name one thing worse. He thinks he's lost his man card, and it's not recoverable. <clears throat> and I know that because I was a boy once, and you think like that. Because every boy, every boy wants to grow up and be one thing, and that's a man. And so they pulled up. I was waiting for him. I opened up the van door, and I'm telling you, Fisher is staring at me, and the look on his face was every bit 
Dad, just give it to me straight. Just give it to me straight. Is this recoverable? Have I, is it permanent? Can't be a man now? I mean, this is awful, Dad. You know it is. So I don't get it right every time. I did get it right this time. And so I looked at everybody else in the van. I said, I want everybody to know something right now. Fisher Stinson is the toughest five-year-old boy I have ever seen in my life. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. Thumbs up. And uh, I said, you want to go look at your eye? Yeah, let's go look. It was over. Dana had been telling him 40 times everything's okay. Masculinity is imparted by masculinity. He just needed to hear it from another man. Do not underestimate, dads, your role in helping your sons. So don't humiliate them. Don't say you're never going to be a man. You might say, that's not what men do. You just hit your sister. Have you ever seen me hit your mother? No, sir. Then that's what I'm trying to tell you. Men don't hit women. Boys don't hit girls. Are you whining at school? Well, yes, sir. Let me tell you something. Men don't whine when they have to do their job. Do you hear me whining every day when I have to go to work? No. All right, then. School's your job right now. You don't whine. Men don't whine. You don't say you're never going to be a man. You throw the carrot out there. This is what men do. This is what men don't do. All right. Well, I'm done. I feel like I just got up to 80 miles an hour and just slammed on brakes, but that's all I got. Well, that's not all I got. Let me be clear, but that's all I have time to give you. So appreciate y'all. Glad you're here. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I do pray that as I can pray one last time in public here for courage. The Apostle Paul prayed for courage, and so we pray for courage. We pray that you would give us the resilience that we need and the fortitude that we need and the confidence in you that we need to help raise our boys to be gospel warriors that are willing to take risks for the sake of the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.